You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name's Kathleen McLean. I coordinate public programs here at the AGO, and I'm going to give you a quick guide to what's happening here at the gallery tonight. Um, so right now, you're all here for an artist talk by Silke Otto-Knapp, followed by a reception in the AGO's Walker Court, which is on the main floor of the gallery. This talk goes till 6.30, then we invite you all to Walker Court. We'll have remarks at 7, and immediately following remarks in Walker, a performance by Halau Hula Ona Mele Aina o Hawaii with A. Arakawa. So... I hope you can stay for everything, and please join me in welcoming Kitty Scott, our curator of contemporary and modern art, who will introduce Silka. Hello, good evening. Uh, thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, I always like it when we do free events and we get lots of people. It's a good sign. Um, uh, so first I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us this evening at another of our series of public celebrations marking the exhibitions of contemporary artists taking place at the gallery. Silke Otto Knapp, Land Lies in Water, recently opened in the Philip B. Lind Gallery on level one. And there are three of Otto Knapp's paintings on display in the AGO's Thompson collection of ship models on the concourse level. I hope you'll get a chance to see them tonight. Silke Ottoknapp is based in LA, where she is an associate professor of painting and drawing at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, I first got to know her when I was living in London in around 2006 and sort of followed her and worked with her in various places. So uh, I was able to invite her to Banff when I was director of visual arts there. She visited it quite a few times and uh, I think we built up a really kind of solid rapport. And it's one of the most lovely things when you're a curator and you can kind of work alongside an artist and, and know them over a period of time. It's really rewarding. So I think I've known Silke for about 10 years and uh, it's, it's been a really valuable, rewarding, fantastic relationship. Although she still shouts at me from time to time. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, <clears throat> she has shown extensively internationally. However, the AGO is proud to host her first major North American solo museum exhibition. So it's a really uh, big moment for her. And uh, thank you again for coming out to share it. Silke's approach, I would say, is less a feminist critique of painting, but rather a kind of feminist reinvention in terms of technique and subject matter. And if you stay with us during the course of the evening, I'll talk about that a little bit more. So I'll develop that. Um, and I believe she is one of the most significant artists working today, and I'm pleased to welcome her this evening. Um, Silke, thank you. Hello, um, thank you for coming. Yes, I'm a little taller. Can you hear me? Hi, thank you very much for, um, for coming. It's always um, a little bit um, stressful to talk about your work when you're also showing it at the same time, or it's a kind of specific situation, so I thought I'll, I'll dive right into it, and um, I... Um, would like to, I, I'm gonna try not to talk so much about the paintings that are here because you can kind of see that, but talk more about my general approach and ideas that inform, inform my paintings, protagonists that might appear in them and have to give you a little bit more background information to how I think and, um, and work. And um, yeah, thanks so much, Kitty. It's been great working with you on this. So I'm, I hope you get to see the exhibition downstairs. Um, so I actually would like to read you a poem, which um, I also don't usually do when I give talks at art schools, because I think people are, don't have the patience for that. But um, the, um, this painting is called The Map. It's a very recent painting. I just showed it in New York um, last week. I made it, I think, um, well, since, you know, in, in the beginning of this year. And uh, The Map is also the title of uh, a poem by Elizabeth Bishop that lends the title to the exhibition, Land Lies in Water. So I'd like to um, 
let you hear it so you can get a you know you can get a sense of why I'm I'm interested in her work. So Elizabeth Bishop is an American poet um, who died in 1979, but she spent part of her childhood in a small village, fishing village in Nova Scotia, where she lived with her grandparents. So she um, she traveled to Newfoundland in the you know and extensively around that area in the early days of her career as a you know as a as a young writer and has referred to that experience um, in a book of poems called North and South that was first published in 1955. So I will read you the poem. The map. Land lies in water. It is shadowed green. Shadows, or are they shallows at its edges, showing the line of long seaweeded ledges, where weed hangs to the simple blue from green. Or does the land lean down to lift the sea from under, drawing it unperturbed around itself? Along the fine, tanned, sandy shelf, is the land tugging at the sea from under? The shadow of Newfoundland lies flat and still, Labrador's yellow, where the moony Eskimo has oiled it. We can stroke these lovely bays under a glass as if they were expected to blossom or as if to provide a clean cage for invisible fish. The names of seashore towns run out to sea, The names of cities cross the neighboring mountains. The printer here experiencing the same excitement as when emotion too far exceeds its cause. These peninsulas take the water between thumb and finger, like women feeling for the smoothness of yard goods. Mapped waters are more quiet than the land is, lending the land their waves' own conformation. And Norway's hair turns south in agitation. Profiles investigate the sea where the land is. Are they assigned, or can the countries pick their colors? What suits the character or the native waters best? Topography displays no favorites, north as near as west. More delicate than the historians are the map makers' colors. That's it. I don't know what to do with all my papers here. Um, the reason, um, I'm going to show you a, a painting I made of, um, whoops, what's it doing now? Of, That's another recent um, landscape painting, but this is a portrait of Elizabeth Bishop that you can see, one of the few paintings I show you that's actually downstairs. But if you think back to the poem, the reason I, um, I like that poem so much is, uh, has something to do with the way she describes, it sounds like she's describing an actual landscape, what she's, but what she's actually describing is a map. So you have this very um, abstract geographical map as that you know that she kind of um, that, that she's basically observing very closely and uh, reading as if it was the actual landscape and I find this um, this relationship to landscape very interesting because it includes you know the people and their work the history and the way that um, all of these relate to um, relate to and are determined by uh, the natural environment so this kind of relationship to a flat abstract space, And a formal description that she comes back to in every um, stanza, every part of the poem, um, to approach a you know a lived experience and a landscape that's both present and historical is something that I found um, really interesting. So um, I'll tell you a little. This is another portrait of Elizabeth Bishop. It's called uh, yeah, it's just called portrait. The other one was called a cold spring. This one's called portrait. Eb. It's also downstairs, and they. I'm sort of talking as if you would all know that I have visited Newfoundland and that's something that, that, that interests me. That's um, Obviously, you don't necessarily know that and it might be a little bit um, of a kind of odd, of an, of an odd um, interest for somebody who's, you know, is German and lives in Los Angeles. But I, uh, I spent some time um, working there. There is a, there's a residency program there. So I've been visiting a small island called Fogo Island off the coast of Newfoundland for about five or six years now, I've done two longer residencies. And um, these portrait paintings, um, the first residency, I, they have really wonderful studios there, but I, I did not um, respond to the landscape at all in a kind of direct or pictorial way. So I really um, carried on with what I was doing and kind of found out, and, and in retrospect, I think some of the paintings I made there were informed by the experience of, uh, you know, the quite extreme experience of having a studio right Right by the ocean and living in a community there, but um, they did not look. They did not. They did not depict it at all. And uh, 
But I started reading um, Elizabeth Bishop because somebody had told me that she'd um, spent time there and uh, I got really interested in her approach to uh, landscape and this very kind of unsentimental descriptive approach in order to get to, um, you know, in order to, in order to kind of think about what a, what a, what a place is like or, rea or, you know, a reality in a place is like. So I went back to, um, and I was living in London at the time and made um, some portraits of her as a kind of beginning. This is where, and this is something that I come back to again, um, portraits of um, what I call kind of um, protagonists, um, figures whose, you know, artists whose work I'm interested in that, um, that um, means that I kind of want to claim back for my, for, for my experience or for my kind of uh, the life that I live in order to kind of um, see how they might inform that rather than just a kind of uh, historical um, pinpointing somehow or just calling up. So I'll, um, you know, I call them portraits, but none of them really have faces. So they don't have the, they don't have the typical kind of, um, um, the typical um, qualities of a, that you would associate with a portrait. Um, so I'll show you a couple of pictures. So that's the studio up here. That thing is one of the studios, the black box. And this is the walk, not to the studio, but away from the studio to a, to a kind of point. So you get a sense of what the landscape looks like and uh, how that might relate to the, um, the, you know, the, the poem that you just heard. So I was kind of thinking about the how I, I kept, you know, I kept, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. I kept thinking about um, this experience of landscape. I'd taken lots of photographs. I started making um, drawings based on the photographs. I use a lot of a lot of um, drawings in in the in the process of making my paintings. But I kind of, but but I thought I was in. I was really involved in. Um, thinking about stage design and you know and, and and artifice is really something that frames everything you know everything that I do like how do I how do I look at an image how do I read it how do I understand it and I'm interested in in, in space in, in in relationship to you know the painted space to the pictorial space which is always completely flat and at the same time it has a you know it has the possibility for illusion so in order to get a kind of a hold on that I'll, I'll like to think of it as a kind of as, as a theatrical space, you know, which, which uh, with the kind of prosceniums, taking the proscenium space as a, as a starting point because it has a, it positions the viewer really clearly and then there is a kind of limited depth that allows me to, you know, to even begin thinking about, you know, what, what, what to do with this. And so landscape um, was really, you know, much too unwieldy for, for me in a way to, to think about in relationship to the paintings. But I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll show you a few more shots of the studio. And then um, these are some of the paintings I made there. So this, is, this was a really big studio. There were also some, uh, some much smaller spaces they have there, but they're all in these very um, dramatic locations. And uh, so these paintings I want to show you next, maybe can um, give you a bit more of an idea as to what I'm saying when I when I think about this kind of um, you know how how I approach the pictorial space in a in a painting. So I made these last summer on the island, sort of going back there, knowing you know with with you know with the sort of previous experience of um, encountering the landscape, the people, the the, the life there, and wanting to kind of um, bring that into the um, the paintings that I was making. Obviously, these don't have, you know, they have people, they don't have fishing boats, they don't have any of, you know, of, of these kinds of other experiences that I may have been having there. But instead, they're really very formal, almost abstract kind of um, depictions of, or depiction is maybe the wrong word, like, you know, they, I think of them as, you know, as islands was the kind of, uh, um, as a, you know, as a kind of um, an, an, an entity that's both um, abstract and, you know, and, and, and a concrete model for, you know, for a world in a way, um, which is, you know, a, a strong part of the experience that I had working there. So I'll, um, I'll make these paintings, um, like, you know, this, this kind of group of paintings, which I was going to show in an exhibition in, in Tokyo, which is also, you know, um, which, which I had planned to do with an artist friend of mine from Vienna called Florian Pumhösel, who makes very, um, very, very reduced conceptual conceptual work that relates to the space of a painting, but I but comes at it from a completely different angle. So um, he 
was interested in shipping routes and the way that they are marked on nautical ma maps. So the abstract works that you see here are stamped on um, are stamped on a specially produced surface, um, a uh, um, plaster surface, and um, printed in oil onto that surface. So they're very kind of uh, reduced, um, reduced, um, you know, abstract works that relate to um, shipping maps and their. Um, you know, obviously calling into into the discussion their kind of you know political function and and how you know and how maps operate. So um, the the exhibition was called Ratio of a Distance, and I'll um, show you a couple more installation shots. And it's very interesting if you keep in mind the you know the abstract space that Bishop described in the in the map, looking at you know looking at an actual geogra geographical map. It's very interesting for me to see. Um, my paintings in some ways became um, a lot less pictorial and more abstract, and his shipping map maps suddenly started to sort of appear a lot more, you know, read more figuratively, and that was a kind of, um, you know, these, these, these things you can never quite predict, and it was a very interesting experience. Also, I think the reason that my paintings are so, um, so reduced for this, um, for this exhibition has something to do with kind of thinking about, you know, thinking about thinking about it as a response to his work somehow. And both the, um, the, um, the, the, the focus on black and gray watercolor that you also mainly see in the exhibition here, there's two works that are a little bit older that, that have some color in them, and then there is some silver works also a little bit older, but they're also monochrome, so they relate quite directly to the... Um, to the black and gray, again, has something to do with thinking about this kind of um, vast subject matter of, um, of landscape painting and, uh, you know, the history of romantic landscape painting and bringing that into a kind of very flat pictorial space that, um, that is very kind of aware of its own constructedness in a way that's, that's, that seemed to be important for me. And uh, working with uh, restrictions is um, is something that in that really informs my approach to painting. And I wonder what I have here next. Um, maybe this one is a good one to look at. Um, I work with um, to tell you a little bit about the the process that I use in order to make the paintings. Um, I um, work with watercolor on canvas. Sometimes I use gouache, but usually it's just um, it's just watercolor. And I do start with the, like I said, with a you know with a photograph or with an existing drawing, always you know with a you know with an image that I respond to somehow. Lots of the Fogo Island ones are photographs I would have taken, but I use a lot of existing imagery. And as you'll see later, lots of the the images that I'm interested in are kind of uh, recognizable. They're not, um, they're not necessarily obscure, and they, there's always a sense of uh, identification already in the relationship to the image. And I make a lot of drawings, and then the, in the, the painting process is somehow one of, um, um, is somewhat inverted in, in comparison to how you would usually make a painting if there is such a thing. It's, a, it's by way of, um, um, removing paint that I, you know, that I slowly kind of begin to articulate a, a motif, and the, you know, this process that involves a lot of um, water and drying of, of pigment, um, where the pigment will then be redistributed across the surface. So it almost is a form of kind of sedimentation, where there will be darker areas, lighter areas, and the lighter areas are usually the ones that I actually painted on, but the paint then gets removed with by, by, by water being sprayed on it. This might sound really weird. I think it'll become more clear as you see more paintings and then, or maybe when you go upstairs and see what it actually looks like. So I'm thinking about negative and positive marks always, you know, and the kind of nature of, uh, you know, what it means to make a painted mark onto a surface and somehow making a mark knowing that I'm going to remove it and construct an image through removing the mark, you know, um, lets the image sit in a different space somehow. You know, that can both be illusionistic and refer to, you know, to something, something that's, um, you know, that's representational, but it always kind of links it back to this, you know, to this flat space of the canvas, you know, this kind of, kind of almost, a, you know, I don't know, idea of a kind of modernist space in a way. So I'm looking for that tension and for the um, for the painting to exist somewhere in that um, in that tension that's not quite resolved. So this um, takes us somewhere slightly different. This is uh, another of the um, 
protagonists that um, I had mentioned, that Elizabeth Bishop is one of. This is a portrait of um, the um, botanist and painter Marian North. She lived from 1830 to 1890, and um, she was a Victorian painter who um, was also a trained botanist, and she traveled. I think she started when her, after her parents died, she was unmarried. Um, to travel the world, and uh, she was in order to depict um, exotic plants, you know, like from a but but from a kind of scientific perspective, she was really looking for you know she was looking for plants that weren't yet documented. Photography was just in its beginning, and she went to almost every continent, traveling completely on her own. She did have the privileges of a rich Victorian lady, but you know, traveling on on your own taking boats and stuff like that was still quite, there's an amazing, um, she, there, her autobiography exists as in, in book form and it's really quite a riveting read. Um, you know, hearing her both describe the landscapes that she's encountering, but also, um, but also, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know the, the kind of social experiences that she's having of, of life in, in uh, different continents. So um, I got interested in her because, um, so the paintings that she's making look like this. This is not really what you were expecting from my description, probably. They're not really botanical drawings of the usual kind. So they, she's making these kind of incredible, exuberant paintings that really think of themselves as paintings, I, I think. You know? and they, um, um, but they exist somewhere in between. You know, she's, not a, she's not classically trained, as somebody you know, at that time might have been. So they have this kind of... Um, um, homemade quality in a way, but they really have a, you know, a kind of a, a visionary kind of almost, you know, like an, an exuberance that seems very contemporary in a way. And um, so this is from, yeah, I think this is somewhere from the late 1880s or something like that. I don't know where exactly. But there is a gallery dedicated to her work in Kew Gardens in London. She loved Kew Gardens and she dedicated all her work to them. I mean, she gave it all to them and it's organized... Um, floor to ceiling divided up into the different continents that she visited and the bottom is decorated with wood that she brought back from the different continents so it has this kind of quasi scientific approach but really it's just a kind of uh, it's a you know it's a it's a showcase for her paintings and this is um, a really old painting um, which i sort of keep looking back to because it's from 2003 and it's called Palm House Tropical. Quite small, only 60 by 80 centimeters. And I think because I have been um, working on so many landscape paintings and, and landscape has really come, come into, um, come to be very, in, and very interesting problem to me in a way that I look back at these, um, these older paintings because sort of trying to think where the, where the connection is. And um, this one, is a, um, the interior of a palm house, uh, again, in, in, in Kew Gardens. My sister actually is a gardener and used to work there, so I used to um, visit very, very regularly living in, in when I was living in London. And uh, I was also interested in, in Kew Gardens as a, you know, via the, the book that um, Virginia Woolf published together with, you know, with, with illustrations by her sister, Vanessa Bell, about, uh, with, you know, with her short story of, of visiting Kew Gardens. She used to live nearby there, if you read her, um, her autobiography or her, her diaries. Um, Kew Gardens kind of featured as a kind of important, important place for her to visit. So that's another form that, you know, that a kind of one of these, you know, protagonists, which are usually women artists that I kind of, that I'm interested in, whose work accompanies me in, in some way, enters into... Um, enters into the world. So this takes us back again very, very, very closely. This is also um, a painting of Virginia Woolf that I just made, that I just showed last week and um, made earlier, earlier this year, just to kind of tie the, you know, the two approaches in. This is another, another version. There were, I think there were four or five. And it was interesting to find out. I think I'm, I had, um, used Virginia Woolf titles for, um, for exhibitions and for paintings over the years many times, but I'd never actually made a painting of her. The kind of the Palm House one was as far as it, as it, you know, as it went in terms of a direct uh, visual relationship, but I think it has something to do with moving to Los Angeles and um, missing London and the kind of English, 
English culture in, in some way are not having that present every day that made it possible to for you know for these paintings to to emerge also in this kind of very you know decorative way thinking of the in the context that she was living in like Vanessa Bell being part of the Omega workshops developing these you know these patterns and designs um, and so the the you know if you're looking at um, books on Virginia Woolf she always presents herself in exactly the same way. It's always, obviously, the photograph is very staged. There was no casual photography then, and she's always reading and or smoking. So there's, uh, it's really, um, it's, it's peculiar. There's no other photographs of her. So I, somehow that stayed with me, and so I made a whole group of, um, of paintings around that. And this, again, is back to 2007. This one's called Garden Sissinghurst, and... Um, Sissinghurst, so this, this, this painting, it's, you know, Sissinghurst is um, the country's house that was um, inhabited by Vita Sackville-West. She's uh, so obviously also in the Bloomsbury Circle in, in London, and um, she was the, I mean, they say she was the inspiration for Wolf's novel Orlando, and um, a writer in her own right also. So, but she, what she's mainly known for now is the white garden that she designed here at Sissinghurst. And so this is the view from the writing tower. She wrote like on the, you know, in a kind of something like a small tower on that, you know, on that, on that, um, on that estate or whatever you call it. It's actually quite small looking down onto, onto this garden that she designed as something quite, that now stands out as something very kind of, um, a very different approach to garden design than the formal walled garden that's usually associated with, um, you know, with English garden design. So this is the, you know, the, again, you know, you'll hear, I mean, I'll come back to this idea of the proscenium stage, this like view down onto the scene that has very kind of controlled edges is what, what interests me. And also you can see, what I'm talking about in terms of the painting process, all the little white flecks that look white, or like, you know, it's, uh, are kind of like um, paint, little drops, droplets of water that have been removed. So the positive marks, like these green ones down here, and then the negative marks make up the kind of, uh, you know, the, um, the appearance of the, of, of the painting. So you're always thinking about both the, you know, both the garden and then the, and the kind of vegetation in the garden and depicting that, but also, just the mark on the on the canvas that has been that has been removed. This painting's also I do have a few paintings that are in the show. All the figures I want to talk about. So this one's called the White Lilac. It's from 2009, and on a kind of representational level, this is my again attempt of a portrait of the um, paint of the artist Florine Stadheimer in her garden. But um, again, on a material level, um, figure and ground kind of exist in a kind of strange, unstable dynamic that's produced by working um, with negative and positive marks. And then this one uses some silver pigment, um, so with the reflective qualities of the silver pigment. That was something that really interested me for a while, to the point that I was just making monochrome silver paintings with figures on them. I'll, I'll show you a couple of... Um, uh, examples where I was interested in the fact that they were producing a slightly, you know, that you were confronted with a reflective surface. So the painting would always almost disappear from you. It kind of changed depending on, you know, on where you stand in relationship to it. There are some silver paintings in the gallery also. So hopefully you can, um, you have, can have that experience. This is a self-portrait um, that Florine Stettheimer painted of herself in the 1920s. It's called Painter Self-Portrait with Fawn. And it kind of sets the scene for why I'm, I'm kind of interested in her as a figure. She lived in New York. Um, in the earlier part of her life, she traveled uh, extensively in Europe, studying painting and you know, looking, at, looking at culture and things like that again from a kind of a privileged New York family. She lived with her mother and sisters, and um, she's always kind of, you know, she developed a very academic approach to painting, but then in the late 20s, um, moved back to New York and started working there, and um, the sisters together, the family together, started running a, um, um, a salon that would bring together lots of different, um, you know, artists, um, thinkers, you know, critics of, of, of the time, and um, 
was a kind of important part of New York uh, social life. She never, though, showed her paintings. She showed them in the context of the salons, but she never really exhibited them publicly. So I think this self-portrait is kind of very interesting because it's both, you know, it's both kind of um, exuberant in a way and kind of, you know, and, and over the top with the, you know, with the fawn referring back to the Ballet Rusnijinsky um, ballet that she would have seen in, in, in Paris. But at the same time, it's kind of a, um, also a kind of, you know, a little bit of a, of a joke at herself in a way. You know, is this fawn her muse? It's like, see, she's turning a kind of critical, slightly bemused eye on her own fantasy of being an artist in a way. It has both, both elements. So this is a, like, finally we have some color, um, is a painting from 2009 called Interior West 40th Street. And that refers to the apartment that Florence Setheimer um, kept in New York with, with her sisters. And the special thing about this apartment was that she had, um, that it combined uh, living space and studio space. So this is the view from the studio space with the paintings, as you can see, looking into the living room. And um, then this is the sister painting that looks from the living room into the, back into the studio. And um, she was at the time she was, you know, the story goes that she was um, separating the two rooms um, using cellophane curtains because that was a very modern and chic material at the time that was completely new. So um, I guess it's you know the it, it's 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 interesting what it does to the you know to the light situation in the you know in, in the paintings and also the photographs. This is um, a painting called um, Interior Red and Purple. No, 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 Soiree, it's called. That was, my, mine's called Interior Red and Purple. <laughs> um, so this is one of Stettheimer's paintings, and you can get the sense of how she was working. You know, these paintings are now, um, they're like a kind of an index of uh, New York kind of um, society, or let's say intelligentsia in a way. This would have been one of her. And if you had the, if you were in the know, you could read who each of the figures in the paintings are. You know, and there's always also a time element in the, in the painting. So the, the painting you see in the background is a self-portrait that she painted of herself in the position of Manet's Olympia. And then you can obviously go for the, further back. Olympia, Manet referred to, uh, you know, an earlier painting and so on. So it's, she, she sort of paints herself into that male genealogy and then refers back to it in the context of, um, you know, of the, the, the kind of salon situation that she's hosting in New York. So um, this is a painting called A Spring Sale at Bendel's and that kind of makes that, you know, obviously she's looking from a privileged position, you know, of a kind of uh, rich lady in, in, um, in, in New York, but she's looking at herself and her, you know, and her contemporaries with a kind of very fierce, not cynical, but a kind of critical perspective. So this is like um, women like her going to the sales at a department store in New York. I'm sure you all know it. It's still there. The staircase, you know, the curvy staircase is still there if you go visit it. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic painting, I think. So I was, when I was kind of thinking about making a painting of her living space, I was kind of trying to um, think of the, you know, the colors that she's, she's using also. Although her paintings are, very physical, the paint's almost kind of caked on like, uh, like an icing. You know, it's really very thick, very, very thick pastos kind of use of, of the material. And she's not, at, I mean, but just recently there was a big uh, retrospective, you know, overview exhibition of her work in Munich, at a museum in Munich, because um, there, there was one at the Whitney in the, in the early 90s, I think that's when I first really, you know, became aware of her work as an, as an art student in London reading about this and kind of thinking, why don't I know about this amazing painter? But because, you know, she never showed in her lifetime and the paintings were all given to museums, um, ended up in storage, you know, because she is very out of sync with, you know, what was going on in terms of, you know, art history and the kinds of work that was being, being looked at at that time. So um, in the 90s, like, you know, um, feminist art historians started to reconsider her work and there was an exhibition and so that, and that keeps coming back in waves and artists know about her. I mean, you may have seen, there's always a few paintings on view um, at the Metropolitan Museum, it's in there in the basement. But there, you know, but there is there is the whole group. They're called the Cathedrals, the Cathedral series. So it's the Cathedral of, of Wall Street, of Fifth Avenue, of kind of different um, social and economic factors that determined life. You know, um, that that would have been important for her life. So, 
on to the next one. So this is uh, a self-portrait. It's called Self-Portrait with Birds. It's by Marie Laurencin. And I'll um, only talk about her briefly, but um, she's a French painter who um, lived between 1885 and 1956, and she is the self-declared kind of only f female member of the... Um, of the um, Cubist movement. Um, she um, studied um, ceramics and then later on drawing and painting and kind of met um, and exhibited the paintings at the, at the Salon des Independences. And there, that's where she met Picasso and Braque and you know, different, you know, the, the, the kind of um, male artists of her time and started, uh, you know, started a dialogue with them and became sort of part of their, their um, group. But again, you know, you've all heard of them, but certainly never heard of her and her paintings are quite, um, quite um, extreme and, 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 and individual, I, I, I would say. She almost only um, depicted um, female figures in her paintings as well. That was kind of almost, I think, pro programmatic. And she did quite a few um, set designs for the Ballet Russe. And this is one for a ballet called Le Biche that I'm particularly interested in. And um, we finally get to some um, some set design. It She made it for the um, for a Ballet Russe production. It was first shown in the early 20s. And it's set in... Um, the the, the uh, choreography is done by... Um, Bronislava Nijinska, who is uh, Nijinsky's um, sister, and a, you know a fantastic uh, choreographer whose works are still in the you know in the repertory of um, big um, big big um, ballet companies today. So I've seen this uh, performed quite a few times. The Royal Ballet Ballet in London still performs it regularly. The music is by Poulenc, and it's set in a kind of. Uh, modernist house in the south of France where they're having a they're having a summer party and um, this all sounds very kind of a typical ballet in a way but at the time it was really a, you know a, a groundbreaking production because the gender roles were completely inversed in terms of you know how the male and female protagonists were operating within this and um, the main character is a hostess and then there is a group of uh, the corps de ballet is really, really important. The group of women that you see here and the male characters are just there for their acrobats that are just there for the entertainment of the, of the female party goers, so to say. So it's a kind of, uh, you know, it's within, still within the context, obviously, of um, the traditions of, um, of 19th century um, classical ballet, which was always mostly in a reactionary position, kind of entertaining you know, and entertaining the audience and kind of keeping the political and social status quo, it had kind of not very much of a relationship to what was going on in the world. So in the 20s, earlier even in 1915-16, with the ballet ruse that really changes and ballet becomes a, you know, an avant-garde art form where people collaborate, you know, artists, designers, choreographers, and, uh, and um, collaborate and kind of come up with, um, kind of bring the reality of the... First World War and you know and the communist revolution in Russia into you know into what goes on in stage on 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 the stage in its own in its own way you know so that's I, that that moment is kind of an an interesting one for me kind of um, especially when it manifests itself in such a way so this is a painting from last year that I uh, that is called um, Stage Libish and uh, I'll just um, and this is another another one they're made at the same time. So this is, I've I've come back to these um, to these to these motifs um, quite a few times over the years. There are some in color as well. That gives you gives you an idea of how I think about the um, the proscenium stage as a kind of clear demarcation of you know where the viewer is in relationship to the space and the depths of the space. Um, you know, thinking about you know in, in relationship to the pictorial space, like the you know the surface of the painting and then the borders surrounding it. And this is um, from 2013. It's called Group Portrait, and it's kind of my uh, me imagining. It's based very directly based on a portrait that Marie Laurencin painted of herself and her peers, all men. Um, it's set set in this kind of you know imagined pastoral setting in. Uh, um, somewhere on the outskirts of Paris, and it does have these kind of weird um, 
kind of colorful abstract baubles all around it. So I kind of, I, I was interested in this, you know, in this kind of, uh, you know, her, her perspective or interpretation of what a kind of cubist, uh, you know, take on, you know, on a, on a landscape might be with figures in it. So it's called group portrait. And I kind of imagined her in this kind of fictional setting with um, all these other kind of um, female characters in, in, in some way. So um, I'll introduce you to a couple more. So this is a study by Sonia Delaunay who did a lot of um, um, set designs, also did a lot of um, um, you know, fabric designs. And I think there is something kind of interesting in um, this idea of um, collaboration, because I don't want to dwell too much on, you know, women artists being written out of history, but I think there is some, or, or marginalized in, in, in a way, because lots of this is also Sonia Delaunay. Um, obviously, there have been lots of exhibitions now re looking at that work, reclaiming it, but I think there is something interesting in the kind of collaborative moment where they're not just producing paintings, but they're also making set designs for ballets, you know, for theater, for, for plays, they're doing, they're working in fashion, they're doing, you know, and, 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 um, and kind of uh, bringing their vision to, um, and their ideas, their kind of modern ideas to these various uh, fields rather than just the, just the kind of fine art realm. Fine art realm. So um, this is um, okay. Yeah, this is so, so. This is Sophie Teuber Up's set design for um, oh, Sonia Delaunay, sorry, <laughs> from the twenties, and this is um, a painting that is called Swimmers Blue from two thousand and seven. That um, relates to a. I mean, it's a little bit of a similar similar situation to the Libish ballet that I talked about before, but it's it, it shows you quite well how the, you know, how I think about the proscenium stage as a form to organize the pictorial space, but then always kind of, you know, this kind of, you know, trans this, these layers of um, of dissolved um, like clouds of color in a way that you know that refer you back to um, to the. Um, to the surface of the, you know, of the, you know, of, of the actual canvas. So you always have a, you know, a play between a limited depth and then the kind of, uh, um, the, you know, the flat surface. So this one, this 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 one's really an amazing ballet, also with um, this, with uh, costumes designed by Coco Chanel. Again, one of those. And the uh, the drop cloth in front is the is the uh, swimmers bathers. I think they're called by Picasso. Very famous. Um, design that I'm sure you've all seen before. Um, this is a little bit of a shift. These are two um, dresses, moon dresses, that I um, I didn't make them, but uh, somebody else made them. They were made uh, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago, something like that, for a, um, for a dance performance by a friend of mine in Los Angeles, a choreographer called Flora Wiegmann that I have um, collaborated with in the past a few times, I mean, she's appeared in, we actually, first time we collaborated, she came to Banff when I um, was invited to Banff and did an exhibition there of just silver paintings that were really constantly shifting as you were moving in front of them. And uh, she came and worked, used that as a kind of rehearsal space for, I think, three weeks or something like that. So from there, we had a kind of ongoing dialogue and uh, are both interested in kind of a similar history and uh, similar dance history and moments in in the history of dance and actually there's I think Yvonne Reyna is coming to the AGO for a, you know for a um, for a talk for like a conference on Saturday so I mean that's definitely somebody that we're both very 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 interested in and 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 thought about a lot but um, you should all go and see that but back to the dresses they are based on designs by Yves Saint Laurent that's from the 60s, from the pop art collection, and his original designs are very brightly colored, like really very, very poppy looking and really more pictorial. But I was interested in the, you know, in the motif of the sun and moon that I, at this rate, not sure I get to talking about in, in a lot of detail, but um, that's a, another kind of way for me to approach thinking about uh, landscape, you know, um, this, uh, you know, thinking about it in terms of a theatrical backdrop that may be lit by moonlight, you know, as a, as a way to, um, to, you know, to, to frame it, to make a, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that when I show you some landscape paintings. The, so the dresses, I, last year I showed them on, 
on uh, showroom dummies as part of an exhibition, but uh, sort of used them as these kind of, I don't know, protagonists, actual figures in the exhibition. It was an interesting experiment, but um, before that, they were always worn um, by the dancers in a performance situation. That's what they're, that's what they're made for, really. Um, this is a painting... I guess the you know the, thinking about the, the the history of dance maybe I'll go through this a little bit faster. That's downstairs. This one's um, ah yeah this one's maybe a good one to um, to talk about that relationship to landscape. This is one of the first uh, moonlit paintings that I made, and I was um, thinking about um, and this kind of idea of staging here again. I was thinking about. Um, the use of a drop cloth for theatrical productions, you know, like it would be the, you know, the curtain that usually has a has a kind of illustrational image of some kind that sets the that sets that sets the tone for the performance to come without being the backdrop. So you can be a little it can be a little bit more involved as a as a painting in a way because it's not doesn't just have the function the clear function of the backdrop. So um, I was here. I combined um, the the birds on the edge are um, referring to a design by Natalia Goncharova, also a, um, a Russian painter who started working in the, you know, in the 10s and 20s, um, um, who did a lot of ballet russe stage design. So this was for one of the designs. The original is very brightly colored, and I was kind of um, using that to frame this kind of very over-the-top romantic you know, um, Japanese woodcut-inspired landscape painting in the middle. That was, you know, a figure watching watching the moonrise. So I was kind of imagining this as the as the um, setting for a performance that was still to happen in a way. And again, that's about you know um, setting myself uh, restrictions in terms of giving the painting a function in order to be able to make it. If that if that makes sense. So then that motif um, really stayed with me. So this one's just called Curtain um, Birds. It's quite big. I don't, haven't really said much about it. I mean, my students, I always say, tell me how big this painting is when they give lectures. So I haven't really, but I'm imagining that you can go downstairs and see them. So I guess that's why I haven't done that. This is um, 150 by 130 centimeters. So that's on the kind of larger side, really thinking about it almost like a, like a material, you know, like a kind of a printed material. And this is another version taking on that very kind of simplified um, structure of a proscenium stage with these different kind of panels indicating a sense of depth. But at the same time, they, you know, they're so flat that they could just be bands of fabric laid out on, on, on top somehow. So this one's, um, oh, this one's called Stage Birds. That's another curtain painting, very small one, in, in, in silver. That's just 60, 45 by 60 centimeters. Um, and I guess um, I'm in making these paintings that um, are representations of other cultural forms, but also always paintings or pictures in their own right, I'm interested in the way in which paintings relates to or even refuses the, the idea of being a kind of subjective, expressive activity. So there is always, you know, there affect and how, you know, and how something draws you in and how it affects you is something that I'm obviously very interested in, but I'm trying to, um, I guess, articulate the, um, you know, the process of, um, you know, of, of how that happens and how we read it into the, into the finished, in, you know, in, into the work that I'm making, if that, if that makes sense. Um, so there are neither objective representations of a shared reality, nor purely concerned with the subjective, you know, interpretation or perspective. But um, I guess what, you know, what it really is it's like a space that I'm looking for that can only really reveal itself in the in the process of making, you know, of making the paintings. I mean, I've I've talked about it in this kind of quite uh, mechanical way, of um, you know adding and removing and this kind of almost mundane activity, not mundane, but this kind of a very um, not very expressive or intense activity. It's more a kind of ongoing process the way that I make the paintings. But there is still this sense of I'm not, I can't completely control the process and I don't know exactly what the outcome will be. There is still this kind of sense of um, uh, magic in terms of, you know, um, 
the 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 way that the image that I start out with kind of re gets reconfigured in the process, if that if that makes sense. Um, I just want to quickly show you a few installation shots because you know exhibitions are really uh, interesting because as you have seen the paintings all relate to one another and they're made in groups and then they get reconfigured in groups and the exhibition situation is really very important for me because I can I can present them in a context that's both architectural but it's also in a you know in a particular place in a particular situation so this one um, is an exhibition that was called Questions of Travel also um, taken from Elizabeth Bishop that happened in Vienna and this is a building um, oh that means I have to Hurry up, I think. <laughs> I'll just show you. I'll show you quickly the installation. So it's very, you know, it's we, it's, it was a glass box in, on a kind of traffic island in the center of Vienna, right opposite the secession. So it's, um, it's um, you know, it's a very kind of theatrical stage-like setting. And what do you do in a, in a space without walls? I could have had them build walls, but I really wanted that relationship to the outside, you know, because, and because again, moving, moving around in relationship to the paintings is very important. So we came up with these, uh, with these panels that, the, that could hold the paintings as, that were integrated into the architecture and um, that, um, in, you know, made the view outside as important as the, you know, as the actual, you know, as, as the paintings inside. And at night, it would kind of reverse. It would become this big kind of a lit up stage or kind of shop window where, um, you know, that way you could see the whole exhibition from the outside. That was really interesting. And the paintings that I picked, you can see they all have this, you know, have the kind of space of the, you know, of the you know, of the kind of elements that, you know, that, that, that uh, construct a very simple depth, in a way. I've skipped that for now. And um, do I really, is it time for questions? I, I just want, I, maybe I'll, I'll just skip forward, because you can see some of this in the exhibition, some of you, to the, um, this is all moonlight, 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 dancing, dancing. Here's the, here's the, <laughs> the dancers wearing the dresses in an exhibition in London, where again, you know, I do think it's interesting, because I want to say one word about the performance that's coming after this. Um, and um, it's not the first time that this is happening. So I had an exhibition in, um, in um, Florence, look at this, in a, <laughs> in a museum in Florence. And there, it's a museum dedicated to a sculptor that's in a, in a kind of relatively newly built building, but but on a, because there's no space in Florence, obviously, it's, it's on a kind of ruin of a Renaissance church. So this is, so, the, so they have the crypt to show contemporary art in, because they want to also show some contemporary art. Their director is very interested in this. And so um, he showed this to me on a site visit, and I said, well, but there is no walls, and what are we going to do? I make paintings. And uh, so all the walls, you know, there are still some frescoes on there. Not only are there no walls, you can also not, on what there is, you can't hang anything or you can't suspend anything from it because everything's listed. And so we came up with this, but he, he knew that I was interested in performance and in a kind of theatrical situation. So we um, started to think about um, ways of showing the paintings. And we came up, we looked at Lina Bobardi designs and Scarpa designs for museums and uh, got an architecture firm involved to develop these stands for the paintings, which were then arranged um, in the space. You recognize some of the paintings you've seen before. And um, A, who is uh, A.R. Kava, the performance artist from New York that I've worked with before, who um, is here today and is gonna be performing with the, with the hula dancers was on a residency in Florence for the whole year. So I thought, that's great. We need to kind of have a dialogue about this and um, think about what we do with these paintings on movable stands. You know, it didn't really, I didn't want to move them, I, but I wanted them to be moved somehow. And so he said, you know, and then we started talking and um, the, the two paintings that you see here are both based on um, the first production of the Rite of Spring in 1914. And I'm sure you all know a little bit about what that you know what that means and the kind of uh, maybe hear the music in the back of your head, the uh, stir that that caused, and the rite of spring is taking. Um, oh, here are the design things. Um, is taking um, a Russian, an existing Russian peasant ritual as a starting point for you know for a, you know for a dramatic ballet. 
And uh, the, the narrative of the ballet is a, um, a spring ritual where a virgin gets sacrificed for in in order for you know for the harvest of the next year to be okay so it's this but in the you know in the chorus of the ballet it's this kind of um you know it's it's the kind of ballerina the kind of main ballerina that somehow gets uh, gets sacrificed in this process and she dances she gets sacrificed by dancing herself to death so this is <laughs> this is um you know this is these were the original costumes for it and um somehow A's working with the traditional hula dancer who are doing, you know, traditional hula, which is connected to, you know, it's based on chanting, and the chantings relate to narratives around the island. The the um, Hawaiian language doesn't really exist as a written language, but exists as a spoken language. So knowledge about the um, knowledge about the, you know, natural surroundings and about, you know, the kind of the way society is structured gets gets passed on via these chants traditionally, and the chants provide the rhythm and the narrative for the dance movements. And I was kind of very interested in this relationship of dance to language. I mean, um, classical ballet also operates as a, you know, as a very kind of disciplined language, and so. There is this kind of relationship. So, so, the, so Stravinsky takes a peasant ritual in order to kind of uh, um, set up a modernist revolution in, you know, in in, in composition and and uh, and then Nijinsky in, in how choreography works. And uh, A is kind of looking at this, you know, at this very almost like a ready-made, you know, and at, the, at this kind of form of traditional traditional hula by learning it and then kind of. You know, uh, showing it in a in a in a in a in a different context. It was first performed performed at the Whitney Museum in New York when he was in the Whitney Biennial, and they did it. I don't know if you've been there before. On the they were standing right in the foyer on top of the where they have their books displayed normally, sort of in this, you know, beautiful Breuer. Um, modernist, you know, brutalist um, architecture that was framing up you know, determining our perspective of what, you know, contemporary American art is about. So that definitely spoke to ideas of, um, of um, um, what's the word? I'm not <laughs> looking at somebody giving me the time. But, but so this is what you're, so it'll be, you know, it won't be in the gallery, it will be in the sculpture court, but this is how, you know, this is how it is framed in relationship to the exhibition and this is what the context for it is. Here's the backdrop painting. Okay. I'll end there and you can ask me questions. Sorry, this is so. So we have time for about two questions, and I see Ben has a question. <laughs> so, but can we just Ha-ha. pass the mic? I got. What is that? You're so good. When you showed the uh, the installation in Florence and mm. the movable uh, supports, you know, there's so much like easels in a way, mm. and the image that you showed uh, of your kind of working by the window at Fogo seemed like uh, there was nothing like that that you mm. keep around you. That it it I was struck by a sense of uh, you know that the painting or canvas, which we don't see, might be able to move anywhere on the table, on the floor, you know, mm-hmm. as you uh, require. I'm just curious what your relationship to the canvas is as you're working. I, it's it's true. I, I I couldn't really do anything with an easel. That really wouldn't. I wouldn't know what to how how to use it. And I did notice that as well. But then that these were kind of related to easels in some way. But I think that's, you know, an easel can also be a way of, you know, of exhibiting something. And it made it possible to move it, and that seemed important in, in relationship to to the space. You know, so it got, the, it's, this year got reconfigured for the performance that they did. I didn't show you pictures of the performance because I didn't want to preempt the experience that you're going to be having. But um, <laughs> and uh, but in terms of the studio, I really, you know, I'm, I work on the wall and on the floor. But I don't really paint on the floor. I, it's a it's a matter of you know controlling the drying process. So it's a you know it's a very wet affair where I spray a lot of water and then um, and then I I'm, I move the. It's a very kind of you know 
it's physical, but not in any kind of expressive way or anything like that. I don't. I really don't think. I don't think of it in relationship to uh, performance or anything like that. It's quite. It's really quite a. It's task oriented very strongly. The way my, my the way I relate to um, the stretcher. Maybe otherwise, what I can say is that I. You'll see that in the exhibition. I like very finely woven grounds that I prime myself. So there is a kind of a at least some kind of. A, it's not, it's not totally like a piece of paper, but has some kind of surface. But, and, and I like the stretchers to be very, very skinny because the paintings really don't have a, you know, they don't have a material surface. They're very, you know, they're immaterial and that's very important that you, to me that you don't necessarily know how the painting got to be there somehow. There is no trace of a hand, very little trace of a hand. And like I said, if there is a mark, a brush mark, then that's usually a negative mark rather than a, you know, it's like you, so you see the, you know, you can see the kind of um, negative space rather than the actual, the actual mark that I made. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you had to skip over the Anna, Anna Halpern paintings because you didn't yeah. have time. Yeah. But I was wondering if you could speak about her a little bit, especially mm -hmm. because you've spoken about the, uh, the importance of the proscenium in your relation to the proscenium in your work. And of course, in mm -hmm. her, the workshops, you have the proscenium being dissolved and then the people that she worked with, Simone Forti and Yvonne Rayner, that mm -hmm. <clears throat> the workshop was so influential for, yeah. they further, <clears throat> excuse me, further exploded the proscenium. Yeah. In a way, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that that relationship. Yeah, so this is the um, the dance deck that Anna Hoppen built with her husband in uh, Marin for her, you know, for the um, dance workshops that she was holding there. Um, her husband was a landscape designer who's you know has done a lot of kind of important uh, landscaping. So they had this kind of fantastic collaboration, and her work really comes out of a you know. I mean, like people like Trisha Brown and Yvonne Raynor, this is actually Merce Cunningham performing on the dance deck. Or performing is always, there is always a kind of very close relationship between rehearsal and performance. There is some stairs going up so you can look down on it almost like a, you know, like a, I'm, I'm interested in its relationship to a proscenium, but the proscenium kind of dissolves. It's set into the, into the forest and some of the trees really come out through the, um, you know, through the, they're, 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 they're through the deck and they almost become these kind of protagonists. But at the same time, you know, like landscape and stage really becomes, you know, becomes um, becomes one thing. And, and if you, I visited there because I did a, a project in the museum in Berkeley. So I, um, I uh, met her and, and saw the deck and took my own, uh, my own photographs. But it's really, um, it's, it's, um, you know, the, what she's known for is really, you know, Everything taking you no know, taking dance out onto the street, reacting to situations, then a kind of contact improvisation. She's done a lot of things on the beach and in natural settings. You know things that are very kind of fluid, even very. The few works of hers that are that are set and are getting reperformed, you see them now. They will be, you know, Kitty and I actually saw the performance in the Berkeley Museum of Parades and Changes before they closed the museum, and it was nothing like the documentation I'd seen before. She's integrating. You'll, you'll recognize elements, but she'll be integrating contemporary events and observations that you know that she'll directly relate to. But um, where am I going? I mean, and 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 I think I'm interested in this from a kind of very, I mean, from a very pictorial perspective in a, in a way. Also, I've made paintings, some of them are upstairs, that refer to um, movements performed by Yvonne Rayner or by, uh, like, there is a contemporary dancer in London, Michael Clark, that I'm very interested in, who works with uh, the language of classical ballet, but um, does very kind of... Um, no, it's it's very it's a very kind of contemporary perspective on an existing language like that in a way that's combined with you know with uh, with contemporary music and things like that. So I I I really look at the relationship. I don't want to depict a, or evoke a dance performance or anything like that. But I'm interested in where the figure here is in relationship to the stage and where the you know and and how it relates to the trees and again that kind of spatial construction that's both flat and has a and you know and has and has a depth you know and I I think that's um, that's kind of the way I would have made decisions in the painting and again the you know the white the the, the trees are all. Um, 
removed positive marks. So they have this, you know, so they're there, but they're, but they're not really, they're, they're not really there. They're articulated in their negative presence in a way. And um, I'm sure I could say a lot more about, I'll show you a couple of, then I did some Moonlit's versions of this, um, of this dance deck. It kind of took on its own. This motif here is very well known. You, um, you can find it in publications and online and places like that. But then I started working for my own images and kind of tr started to imagine this in a, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of moonlit scenario and to see how that would change the, um, how that would change the space and how we would perceive it. So there is a, this one's then much more, I mean, that's, there yeah, you really can see the, you know, the flatness versus the space, almost like a kind of mathematical equation or something. And then this is the most, most recent one from last year where it's just a, you know, where it's just a kind of uh, an architectural drawing almost. Okay, well, Zilke, thank you so much for this insight into your work. Thank you, I hope I Go and see the hula performance, it will be fantastic. <laughs> I hope you can all join us in the gallery. Silke's exhibition is in the Lind Gallery, which is on the main floor, the west end of the building, and of course we'll kind of Reconvene in Walker Court for the reception and the performance. Thanks, we'll see you up there. <laughs>